Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Now Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my, under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go back to my country and to my kindred. Take a wife for my son Isaac there. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of evening, a time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her watering jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she born to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household all these things. If you, had tur- if you were turning in your Bibles to chapter 24, you probably noticed that that is not even halfway through chapter 24. 
Um, if you're new here, I preach verse by verse throughout the scripture, and um, I was tempted to do all of 24. Then I heard a story about another pastor who had preached through all of 24. Um, it took him over three hours to do it, and when he was done, everybody was dead silent. They funneled out, and this older gentleman comes up to him. He's like, I want you to know, pastor, that reminded me the love and the peace of God. It was like the love of God because it was never ending. And it was like the peace of God because it transcended understanding. <laughs> we've been pre- I've been preaching, we've been doing this series throughout um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And last week we finished season one of patriarchs with Abraham. Abraham had died and he had been buried in the in the cave of Mephpath, sorry, it's kind of hard to pronounce, um, with, uh, with his wife, Sarah. And now it is a new generation who will take the baton and speed the light for their, for their time. Last time on Patriarchs, we finished season one, Abraham's burial. Now we move on from Abraham to his son, Isaac. We left off on chapter 25. We're actually going a chapter before that this week, but on 25, at the end of what I was preaching on, the last verse was, and God blessed Isaac. When some great person in the faith passes away, we ask that question, who will fill their place? Who will be that person for the new generation? Who will hold the torch for the next generation? Worry no longer because as he he is the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, And he's your God as well. And he is counting on you to speed the light in this generation. Passing the baton, Isaac is next in line of the blessing. God had told him this. He had told him, listen to your wife, that the it was through Isaac that his that his line would be reckoned. He had many other sons. We know Ishmael, his firstborn. But then there was other ones as well through his uh, second wife, but it would only be through Isaac that that the promise of God to bless him and to bless all nations through him would be reckoned. Isaac is next in line for this blessing. We're going back a chapter here because as we talk about Isaac, what's kind of hard with Isaac is that there's not a lot about Isaac. In fact, this season of of Patriarchs is going to be pretty short. It's like, we uh, decided to go to the BBC for this season, so it's only eight episodes, um, if that. You know, there's a time to grow up. We had heard about Isaac being born. We don't really know between the time he was born to the time when, when Abraham had taken him up to that hill to be sacrificed, and then God had stopped Abraham, of course, and told him, now I know that you fear me, and to this time in which he is being married to Isaac, but now it's time to grow up. When is someone an adult? That's a huge question in our culture because we do not have a shared cultural experience for telling somebody, hey, you're a girl, now you're a woman, you're a boy, and now you're a man. Certain segments in our culture might have a quinceanera for their, for their daughter in which that's where they're conferring that that girl is now a woman. In the Jewish culture today, not in Abraham's time, they had the bar mitzvah. And the bar mitzvah was when a, when a, child, when a, when a boy would then be known as a man. You kind of wonder, I remember I wondered when I was growing up, when am I a, a real adult? I turned 18 and I, I could smoke. I didn't smoke, but I could smoke. I had a legal right. And I could die for my country, but um, I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't do a lot of things. So I'm like, okay, I'm not an adult yet. I'm going to college. And in college, my whole time in my college career, there's just a a way people treat you when you're in college, like you're not a real adult yet. So I'm like, okay. Then I graduate college. I'm like, am I a real adult yet? It didn't quite feel that way. I was like, then I got married. And I remember the feeling of like, I'm not an adult yet, even though I was married because we went to the airport and we rented a car and I was 24. And for those of you who don't know, they make you do double the insurance until you're 25. So I'm like, I'm still not an adult yet. We don't have those uh, customs, and other cultures do. In the Amazon, there's a tribe there. And, uh, and uh, guys, boys, how would you like this if this was your manhood ceremony? Um, what they do is they make these mittens. They, they weave them together, and they take, they take this insect, a bullet ant. It's called a bullet ant. It's about an inch, inch and a half big, huge, gargantuan for an ant. They call it a bullet ant because its bite feels like getting shot with a bullet. 
It is number one on the inset pain index. One bullet ant is this. They put these guys, these little monsters, into these mittens in every little hole, and the young men have to dance with them. An anthropologist, just, just for half the time they had to do it, did it, and he had to be airlifted out. Like his heart was going crazy and everything. And these like, these like 14-year-old kids are like, amazing, we, we don't have that. So, you know, with Isaac, we don't know when he actually became a man, but he's become a man. And I think really, if I was going to put my finger on, if we have any idea of when he became a man, it's when God had told his dad, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him up to the hill in which I will show you and sacrifice him. The reason why I say it's there, because he was already of full physical age, And more importantly than that, he trusted the God of his father. Because there's no possible way in my mind, or I think anyone else's mind, that a hundred-year-old, I don't know what we call that even. Like we have octogenarian, which for an 80-year-old, I don't remember what 90 is. I don't know what a hundred is. But Isaac could have resisted. He could have been like, no, I'm not letting you do this. But he trusted in the God of his father, Abraham. And now he is the God of Isaac as well. It's time for him to grow up. And as he's growing up here in chapter 24, we see he needs to have a wife. He needs to have a wife. And unlike our culture, our culture, uh, young men, young women, you know, there's many different things you can do to find a wife. Maybe come tomorrow to our young adults class would be a good idea. Wink, wink. Um, But for them, they would, well, they would need this. Play that video I have for you. Matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find. Catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. Matchmaker, matchmaker, I'll bring the veil. You bring the groom. Slender and pale. Bring me a ring, for I'm longing to be the envy of all I see. For poor often make him a scholar, for love make him rich as a king. That's from Fiddler on the Roof, one of the best musicals. But that's right. Isaac needs a matchmaker to find him a match. I wonder if he had any input on this, of what he would have asked for. Well, we don't know, and probably not. Um, Their culture of dating and courtship um, was very alien to us, probably seems very extreme to us. Anytime you see arranged marriages in any movies, they're always put down. There's some parts in the world where people still arrange marriages like that, in which the family arranges those marriages. And we scoff at that until we, until we uh, see the divorce rates between our culture and their culture. I thought I'd do something fun. You guys know this. I don't often have you guys like raise your hand, do things like this, but I'm going to do it today. Um, so if you're unmarried today, could you raise your hand? I appreciate this. Um, appreciate your, your indulgence. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. All right. So here's my question. So you're going to put your hand down if you would not trust your parents to pick for you your wife or husband. All right. We still have hands up. This is good news. All right. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're like, okay, yeah, I trust my mom and dad. They were going to make if they were going to choose my wife or husband for me. So here's my second question. All right, so now put down your hand if you would not trust their friends to find you a wife or a husband. 
We still have hands up? You guys are crazy. You can put your hands down now. (laughs) I'll be honest, I think I would have had a hard time keeping my hand up even after the first question. This is where Isaac's at. It's not even his dad making this decision. It's his his dad's friend, his dad's servant uh, making this. You know what this amounts to? Now, this is not a sermon only for people who are single or for people who are getting married. No, this is for all of us because we have so many decisions to make in our life. You want to make good, godly decisions without regret? You need to listen. You need to listen and not be agonized every step along the way because this is, this is next to what you do with Jesus. Who you marry is the next important decision you will make in your life. If you don't choose a godly way, if you don't choose a godly wife or husband, it will not go well for you because a godly, a godly wife or godly husband, we have Proverbs 18.12, 18.22, Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I think we can confidently say he, she who finds a good husband obtains favor from the Lord. While Proverbs 20, 21 verse 9 says, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Best blessing in my life is my wife. I can't imagine if I, I couldn't imagine if I wake up tomorrow and Becca's like, I don't love Jesus. It would be the worst thing in my life. Um, I could imagine happening. Um, the, let's go back to Genesis 3. This is really the, the, the path that we see throughout here. Why is this important? Why are we told about um, Rebecca, we are, won't be told about every courtship of every person. So why are we told here? It's because God's promise to the serpent after the fall of man. There was curses God placed on man, curses he placed on woman, and then there was a curse for the serpent. And the serpent we know from Revelation chapter 12 was Satan, that he had gotten into the garden. So he promises him this. He says, uh, from the seed of the woman, I will make an enemy for you, And you will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. As we read throughout Genesis, that should be the idea for us. This is what we should hold. Now, we don't because we have such a Western version of seeing things, but this should be our question. Every new family, is this going to be the seed? Is this going to be the person? As we go throughout the Old Old Testament, we get to Moses. Maybe we want to ask, is this the seed who's finally going to crush the serpent's head. We get to David. Is he going to be the king who crushes the serpent's head? And for each and every one of these people, we get to this point where Moses, instead of striking and speaking to the stone, he strikes it twice because he's so upset. And we're like, no, no, he's not. He's not the seed, is he? We get to David. David, man, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who cut off the heads of giants. He's a guy who, when he went into battle, his enemies ran before him. He was a man who wanted to be known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he is the man who, when he saw somebody he liked, had her husband killed and took her for his own. He's not the seed either. But then we get to the New Testament. And there's this young virgin And she's told she will be with child even though she has never known a man. And that she should call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the seed of the woman. And he crushed the devil's head at Calvary. And the devil is dying. He just doesn't know it. And all of his fury is a defeated power. It is the death throes of one who just doesn't know he's dead yet. This is why this story is important. And then it also speaks to us in our decision-making. Do I, make, do I want to make a good decision for my life? Isaac, we don't know much about the specifics of Isaac's life. Like I said before, we're, we're shipping this to the BBC. We're getting eight segments out of this, if that, maybe three. Because we don't know much about this patriarch's life. There isn't a lot of drama in it, which is, you know, good for him, Right? Except for like one, notice, one notable exception in which he tries to mess up the same way his father Abraham had messed up, except Abimelech this time. He's like, no, no, I know this game. We're not playing this game. We'll get to that in time. Isaac, though, he epitomized really that verse in, in, chapter, um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs 
and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Isaac, for the most part, lived this. He lived a quiet life in humble submission to the Lord. And he probably lived a much more peaceful life than many others. Now, here's one thing. He's probably one of the, more, the patriarchs where we relate to most because he lived life. He raised his kids. He's also probably the one we experience most because we hear more about kind of the normal frustrations. There's no big war he fights. Um, the big frustration of their life was with their daughter-in-law. Now, I hope everybody here has good relationships with your in-laws. But if you don't, you can sympathize with Isaac. While this chapter is about finding a wife for Isaac, it includes important direction for making decisions in our own lives. In this first half of this chapter, this is what we see. We see a good servant. We see his prayer, and we see the answer to his prayer. This servant, in verses 1 through 9, we are introduced to him. He has no name. Many people, myself included, we think this is Eleazar. Eleazar, he's mentioned in chapter 15, verse 2, by Abraham, because he says that among him, amongst his house, only his servant, Eleazar, is his heir. So he has no children. So if Eleazar, if he considered him his heir, and in verse 1, in verse 1, we have now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who put in charge of all that he had, we think, must be Eleazar because he was willing to make the man his heir. If it is Eleazar, there's something very interesting about Eleazar's name. It means God helps. In John 14, 26, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit that same way, the helper. In fact, with this unnamed servant, there are so many parallels between him and the Holy Spirit. We use this term in in theological circles. We say it's a type and shadow, or you could see it like this. It's an illustration. Long before Jesus started talking about the Holy Spirit, we see an illustration of the Holy Spirit in this unnamed servant. One, the Holy Spirit goes into the world to to retrieve a bride for the Son. That's the Holy Spirit's purpose in this world, to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, judgment, and righteousness, to, to, to go out and find a bride, because all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end, will be part of the bride of Christ. The Holy Spirit is getting the bride ready. He's going out and he's finding the bride, just as his servant had done. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father on the Son's behalf. The Holy Spirit, not that the the Son or the Father are not humble, but the Holy Spirit, we see as as the humble part of the Trinity in which he has no name, We have descriptions of him as the paraclete, the one who is beside, the helper, the comforter. But we don't have a name for him as such as Jesus. Yahweh does refer to the Holy Spirit, but mainly it's used for God the Father. He is sent on behalf of the Father. He is sent by the Father because Jesus said, I must go so the Father can send the Holy Spirit. And he, said, and he goes on behalf of the Son. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come. He will not speak for himself. He'll speak what is told him. This is something important for discernment. Ministries, churches, who focus solely on the Holy Spirit, be, aware, be wary of them. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's passion is to introduce the bride to the bridegroom. And he uses you and me as the friend of the bridegroom because he's the true friend of the bridegroom. Eleazar is not mentioned um, by name in chapter 24 because he's an extension of Abraham himself. Eleazar's identity is connected to his master. The two characters are intertwined. So too, the Holy Spirit's character is intertwined with the Father for, they, for, for it, God is three in persons, one in essence. Finally, and not really finally, there's, there's many more. Somebody had a list of 16. But here's something too. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to the bride of Christ. Eleazar, the named servant, he gave gifts to Isaac's bride. As we go in here, we see this servant and we start with Abraham's concern. In verses 1, one through 4, uh, we see Abraham has a lot on his mind for his son. He knows his one, his son needs a wife. Two, He doesn't want her to be a Canaanite. And three, under no circumstances is Isaac to return to Abraham's home country. 
As we get into this, maybe you asked your question as Becca was reading, what's with the thigh thing? That's weird, right? Some of you know me, I'm the no hugs pastor. I'm not touchy-feely. If I give you a hug, you need to write it down because you're not getting many hugs from me. That's just not my personality. So when I read this, I'm just like, okay, if anybody's reading this, keep your hands to yourself. This was then, not now. It's weird, it's awkward. So he puts it under his thigh. So, and the explanation's more awkward than even that. So yeah, get ready for this. Um, in Semitic... In the Semitic idea around the body, um, children came from the loins. And the loins are what you're thinking about, but it's more than that as well. It is the whole area of the body. And the biggest muscle of that area is the thigh. So when, when Abraham has Eleazar put his hand under his thigh, he puts his hands under Eleazar's thigh. This is what he's saying to him. So if you do me wrong, I may never see you again, but my children will avenge me. And that was the idea. The children came from the loins, the thigh being the biggest muscle. So my children will avenge me if you do me wrong here. We asked the question, why not the Canaanites? Abraham does not want a bride from among the Canaanites. There are two reasons for this. One in the past, one in the future of Ab- where, when Abraham lived. In the future, we see the Israelites return to this promised land after being in captivity. And they are told, do not take wives from amongst the Canaanites. You can imagine as they are wandering through the desert, they have been told these stories before, but now Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this down. And they're going back to the promised land, and they hear from God, do not take wives amongst the Canaanites, and then they're reading in the scroll that Abraham did not want a wife amongst the Canaanites for his son Isaac. The other is from the past, from when Noah emerged from the ark with his family And it was his son Ham, who was the father of the Canaanites, who laughed at him while he was drunk and naked. So Noah cursed him. So Abraham does not want a Canaanite bride either. Verses 5 through 9. We see, excuse me, we see the unnamed servant asking the question, so what if I go there and she's just not having it? Can I come and bring Isaac back? You know, it's kind of like to sweeten the deal. Like, excuse me. Maybe she's wondering, like, in Fiddler on the Roof, if you've seen the, the musical, seen the movie, if you remember the first husband he has, uh, that the main character has for his uh, daughter, is a guy who's older than him and who's a butcher because he can get good meat. So we can understand, right? The servant is thinking, okay, if I go there and I, I start talking to her, I'm an old guy, and maybe she's thinking, oh, Isaac is going to be an old goat. Maybe I can bring Isaac back and be like, hey, he's a handsome dude. You're, you're, you, you'd, you could do far worse. Abraham responds back and he's like, yeah, un, under no circumstances are you to bring Isaac back to my home country. That's, that's some hard-fought experience right there. That's some hard-fought wisdom. Because we remember, with, we remember with Abraham that he had left the promised land after being told to go to the promised land. He went to Egypt and it caused him nothing but problems. Even the wealth he got from Egypt became a problem for him because it drove a wedge between him and his nephew Lot. You know what he also picked up in Egypt? Well, his wife picked up a servant named Hagar. Didn't go so well. He knows what it means to leave the land of promise, to go to some other place, and he's also worried about the allure of going back home. And that's a powerful bit of wisdom because when we think of our past, we have these rose-colored glasses and we think, oh, everything was perfect. Everything was nice. No, it wasn't. There's this book, and I can't remember who the author is. I haven't even read it. I just love the title. And it's like, the good old times, they were terrible. <laughs> Abraham, he knows, he's like, I don't want my son anywhere near there because he's the son of promise. We cannot risk his spirit by having him go back. Because there's no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. If you've decided to follow Jesus, you will find it extremely hard to follow Jesus when you go back to these old empty wells you used to frequent. One thing that I know in addiction specialists in the 12-step program, one thing they urge addicts, do not go back to the old friends. Do not go back to the old ways of living. Before you know it, you won't go back thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going back so I can indulge in the things that I used to. No, you're, you might even think, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rescue people from here. 
the allure, the subtle allure is way too powerful. This man is a good servant. One parallel between the servant and ourselves is that he is a good servant and a servant does what his master tells him to do. A servant represents his master well. In Corinthians, Paul says that we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are the ambassadors of Christ as though as God is making his appeal through us. The one who desires over all others The one desire over all others for the Christian should be this, that at the end of our life, we hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your master's happiness. In verses 10 through 20, we see this prayer. We see this prayer he has. And once again, we remember the context that he is praying for a wife, for his servants, for his master's son, um, Isaac. So what are these prayers that he, what is this prayer he's going to pray? There are different purposes in prayers and different prayers we can pray. There are different kinds of prayers. There are prayers for material needs. Hey, when your car breaks down, you pray over it. When you need money for, for rent at the end of the month, you pray over it. There's prayers for repentance. We must remember those to continually asking God, make my heart tender that I may be aware of the sin that so easily entangles. Prayers for peace. Prayers for direction. This servant is praying for direction. He knows where the ladies are, and he knows he wants to choose a, the right one for, for Isaac, but he wants, to make sure, he wants to make sure it's God's choice and not his choice. What he knows is that he, what he is about to do is his master's business, and he will find a wife for his master's son. In verse uh, 10 and 11, before we get into this prayer, we see him getting 10, and I'm I'm just going to go ahead and just read it verbatim here. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all the sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time the women go out and draw the water. And before this, we see him taking these choice gifts. Why is he bringing so much loot with him, right? It has to do with the bride price and the dowry. Now, this is something we don't have nowadays. I'll, I'll talk about the dowry first because we don't really hear about the dowry. This is about the bride price. Um, the dowry was given, um, was given by the wife's family to the husband but the husband could not do anything with the dowry. He could put it on deposit when there would be banks and he could live off the interest, but he couldn't touch the dowry itself because the dowry was for the wife in case something happened to the husband. If the husband should die, that is all she had to live on. And if the husband divorced her, that's all she would have to live on. Jesus gives this story about this woman who has, who has a set number of coins and she loses one of them. And she sweeps the whole house. The people listening to this story, they're like, yeah, she is. Because we don't hear about this husband. That's all she has to live on is this dowry that her husband's family had given to her so she better find this coin. They get that. We don't so much get it because we're not from there. But what Eliezer, the unnamed, or the unnamed servant here, what he's doing is he's getting 10 camels, loading them with goods because this is for the bride price. The bride price was paid by the husband's family to the brides to compensate them for the, for the lack of their daughter. We think of that today, maybe we think of that kind of like in that emotional sense. They thought of it more in the transactional sense and that they had a good worker. Um, amongst the Bedouins even to this day, and I'm going to blame this on Skip Hedricks because he's the one who said it. I haven't been over there. I don't know if it's true. But this is what he said when he was over there amongst the Bedouins. During the day, all the men, they gather in the tent and they, they sit around in a circle. They drink coffee. They, they talk about business dealings. And the women go out and do like all the manual work or womenly work, or I don't know how you want to say it. And I had heard this and I was like, I was born in the wrong... T- I'm mean, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> But even back then, and especially back then, that's what we see even in the scripture, that it's the women who are out watering the animals. They, they lose this worker, so the bride price is to, is to um, compensate them. He's bought, he has brought over an abundance of what the bride price will be because obviously he does not want to make two trips. And as somebody who will, who will put every bag on his hands he possibly can hold so I don't have to take two trips, I get that. I don't want to make two trips either. He prays for this wife. And I think his prayer, 
Now, I've kind of gone through, summarized all these verses. I want to read this for you because this prayer, this is the kind of prayer you need to pray when you are making a decision in your life. And he said, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. So he appeals to the greatest authority, to the Lord God. He doesn't have his little list he's making. Okay, she needs to be 5'9". She needs to have blonde hair, almond eyes, all of these things. No, he appeals to God first. Oh, uh, he says um, in verse 12, and he said, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. In your prayers, when you're making decisions, figure out what's the most important. Here's the most important. So if I'm praying for you, I am praying God's best over you, not my agenda. I'm praying God show steadfast love to this person, this family, this community, not what my agenda might be. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Verse 14, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar and that I may drink and who shall, and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one who you have appointed for your servant Isaac. There's a couple things in this that we need to unpack. It's a prayer for the wife. What strikes us about this is the humility and reliance this, mas- this servant has on his master's God. He doesn't want to come, he doesn't come with his list. But what I think is interesting here is that his prayer, what's not in this prayer. I remember growing up in camp and I remember going to um, different conventions. They were like true love weights, but they weren't. They were like an AG version of that. And we were told to make lists for our future spouse. We were told to pray for our future spouse. And absolutely, that's great advice. Pray over everything coming up in your life. Absolutely pray for that and pray for them. And remember, we were encouraged to make these lists. And I remember at the time, we'd share these lists in these groups. And I always thought it was weird because it was like co-ed groups. Because I was like, how weird would it be if like one of these kids who doesn't even like know like this gal in there wrote down, like, I want her to be 5'3", brown curly hair, uh, wearing a faith church shirt uh, with red accents. And like, that would have been so weird, right? That would have been like, let's move on now. We'd come up with our list. And I was always struck about how shallow the lists were. It was like, okay, I mean, it seems like you already have an idea of what you want, and you're going to tell God, this is what I want. You know what Eleazar prays, though, this unnamed servant prays? He prays, this prayer is that, you know what his golden fleece is? It's about character and about her character. Camels are interesting beasts. Now, I've never actually even seen a camel. So I had went online, I went to the Library of Congress, and I asked this question, how much water does a camel drink? Because I wanted to know, what does it mean that she's like, I'm going to water your camels as well? Is it like, you know, watering horses? I'll just pour a bucket of water in the trough, and they'll be okay. A camel, when it's ready to drink, can drink up to 20 gallons of water. There are 10 camels. She has to haul... 200 gallons. I know some of our young women here today are pretty strong, but like, you know, Sophia, how would you like to haul 200 gallons? She's like, no, no, I'm good. That was one of the things. So, you know, you, you talk about, we would have these things and you talk about what well, you want your future wife to be, your future husband to be. And he didn't see a lot of stuff about character there, but that's the most important. Looks and youth will fade. What about character? What is about this person? Now, Rebecca, like my Rebecca, was very attractive. But that's not what he asked for. He's like, may the person who has the good character, maybe she, may she be the one you appointed. You see the desire in that because he wants somebody who's trustworthy. Somebody, how, how would they treat a stranger? Because that's who he is. This old dude shows up. He's like, can I have a drink? Okay, the one who's like, okay, for the stranger, I'll go above and beyond. I want her to be the wife. But he's putting this all under the sovereignty of God as well. I know there's people who come up to me because I'm pastor. And throughout the years, and they're like, Pastor Jason, you need to pray that I find a good husband and a good wife. And sometimes I want to respond with, why don't you become a good husband and a good wife? There are some people I want to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to inflict you on them. 
You would, be, you would be a curse for them. You need to work on yourself. And more, more importantly for ourselves, especially single folks, than praying for a good spouse is you need to pray that God makes you into a good spouse, that you would be a blessing to that future person. Now let's talk about those of us who are already married. When it comes to all the things in our life, Lord God, make me that virtuous person by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit are so evident in my life that wherever I go, I might be a blessing towards others. Be glad God does not always say yes. Be glad God does not always say yes. Now, God said yes to this servant, but I was thinking about all in this and about all these selfish prayers we pray, and God in his goodness will say no. Because I was thinking about Bible college, me and Becca went to Bible college, and there's people who, um, instead of asking God, God, direct me to the person that you want me to marry, it was more like, God, I have somebody in mind. And they were so blessed because God told them, no, not going to do that. Other people, they wouldn't take no for an answer. And they, they went ahead. They went ahead. And despite all the recommendation of all the godly counsel they had in their lives, now don't get me wrong, there are some people, they play the act. And from outward perspective, they seem like good people, swindlers and shysters. But there are some people, no, there's warning signs. And unfortunately, we put on those rose-colored glasses. We miss those warning signs. And I have horror stories about people in Bible college who should not have gotten married who did anyway. The answer before he even says amen. In verse 15, before he's done praying, the servant, before he's done praying, there's Rebecca. There's Rebecca. I wonder how many answers to prayers we miss because we are not ready for the answer. We make it so esoteric, we make it so mystical that it's hard for us to see when God's like, hey, I'm answering. It's like that old story about the hurricane about to hit and the guy prays and God tells him, I'm gonna rescue you. The waters start going up. Somebody comes over in a boat and they're like, hey, get in, hurricane's coming. He's like, nope, God will rescue me. The waters raise a bit higher. Somebody comes in a, a different boat. Nope, God will rescue me. Finally, there's a helicopter out there and they have, the, they have the little thing out there. And he's like, no, God will rescue me. Well, he drowns, he gets to heaven. He's like, God, you said you'd rescue me. And God's like, I sent three people, man. Sometimes we miss the answer to our prayer because we're not ready for the answer. But this servant is not, he's ready. He's on point. He's ready to hear the answer from God. And before he says, amen, there's Rebecca. Here's the answer to his prayer in verses 16 through 20. Rebecca, like my Rebecca, is beautiful. She comes from a good family. But what's important is that she was God's chosen. And second to that is that she was a woman of character. Single people don't ask so much for God to find you a godly spouse, but be a godly spouse. And here's the, that was the answer to his prayer. In verse 21, though, he is somewhat reluctant. And this shows wisdom. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. We read this and we're almost kind of a little frustrated. We're like, of course he did. Look, it's exactly what you asked. And she said, I'll, I'll water your camels. But he's using wisdom here. And this is great because sometimes we lay out our fleeces and we do so in a way to where it might be pretty likely. And then we jump the gun before using any kind of wisdom on what should happen next. Gideon, the judge, we know him. And that's what I was referring to. He had his fleeces. He had, the, he had his, his test for God. And that was good. And we should have those. Now, I'm good, dude. You don't have to get me water. Appreciate it, though. Um, so he had that. And that was good. But you know something? He didn't use wisdom later on when he asked for an ephod. An ephod was a garment the priest would wear. He sets up this ephod and they worship it like an idol. We need to use wisdom as well. Because sometimes we need to ask ourselves, if it looks too good to be true, maybe it is. Maybe I need to take a second and breathe and think, okay, is this really what God is leading me to? Is this really something that God would want me to do? Or is it just something that I'm so keen on having, I don't care what the warning signs are? In verses 22 through 24, he inquires about her family. What does it matter who her family is? Well, it mattered to him. What does the servant care about whose daughter she is? 
So this is going to be very difficult for us to understand as 21st century Americans, but he actually wanted to know that she was part of Abraham's family. The reason why I say this is going to be hard for us to understand as 21st century Americans is because the taboo around incest was different back then. Now, it would be outlawed by God's law. There was taboos even in Abraham's culture about brothers and sisters of the same mother and same father. But it was a plus in their column that she was actually part of his family. Once again, this would change, but that is what that is about. The servant, he brings out some of that dowry and she responds to that as well. But this is after she had already watered his camels and he is ready for this. And after this, this is his expression when he is, when he is convinced that God has prospered his journey, that God has found a bride for his, son, his master's son. This is verses 25 through 28. She added, um, we have plenty of both uh, straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love for his, faithful, for his faithfulness towards his master. When you read about that in the steadfast love or whatever your translation is, what they're translating there is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is the equivalent in the Greek of agape. God's unfailing, tender love. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. He's excited. He is beyond excited. Now, you know what happened like, if, this, if this trip was a failure for him? Absolutely nothing. Abraham has made that clear. You do all these things, she doesn't want to come back, big deal but his heart was for his master. His heart was excited that his master's son would have a bride. This is where you and I should be as believers in Jesus Christ, making disciples. The Holy Spirit uses us as the friend of the bridegroom. From John chapter three, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Look at how excited he is and how he praises God. It isn't anything for himself, but yet he is so excited because his heart is towards his master. He is excited because he is the friend of the bridegroom and he has found an excellent bride. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul himself sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. He says, for I, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now I want you to remember the metaphor the scripture uses for the children of God. We are the bride of Christ. So you're a man here today and you're like, I'm not a bride. You're part of the bride of Christ. It's collective type deal. You're part of the bride of Christ. And Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. He saw them struggling in sin. And he has this divine jealousy. He's like, it shouldn't be this way because you're Christ's bride. And so, yes, I am awfully, awfully concerned where you're at and spiritually. And as your pastor, as the under shepherd at this church, I'm awfully concerned where you get to be spiritually. I'm not a busybody. I couldn't, honestly, myself, my personality, I couldn't really care less what people do who are consenting adults. But as your pastor, as your under shepherd, I have promised you to Christ as a pure virgin. And when I see you struggling with sin, my heart breaks. And each and every one of you should have people like that in your life. You should have people that you've led to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. When you do that, the Holy Spirit uses you the way Abraham used this servant to be the friend of the bridegroom. And when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when you're prospering, when I see God working in you, Calvin, when I see you preaching the word of God this last Wednesday, I'm like, I'm like Eliezer here. I'm like, huzzah. When I see the fruit of the spirit in your life, I'm excited, man. And you should have people like that in your life. 
that their sorrows are your sorrows and their triumphs are your triumphs because you are the friend of this bridegroom and you have divine jealousy over them because you betrothed them to one husband to be presented as a pure virgin to Christ. So today, worship team, come up at this time. Be a servant who prays and waits for the answer. In all your decisions, seek the will of God and use wisdom. Use the principles of the scripture. And once you've done these things and you make your decision, rest in that. You'll have buyer's remorse, but you rest in because you're like, I went through the scriptures. I saw what was good. I went and did what was good. I can rest in this. This is the challenge. The Holy Servant, the friend of the bridegroom is here today, the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to you. If you don't know the Lord today, the question I like to ask, if you were to die, do you know you're going to heaven without a doubt? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Today, that holy servant has traveled from afar and he's come to this place to find a bride for the bridegroom. Fall upon the mercies of Christ today. Even in your seat, as we, do this, as we sing this final song, Cry out to the Lord and he will save you. Recognize your sin. Not simply that you're imperfect. Know that you are a sinner. Like me, like everybody here, you have sinned before God and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and hate the sin you once loved and love the Holy One you once ignored. And if that's you today, like you're like, I, I, I really do all these things, Pastor Jason. Then know in everything you say and do, Put the Lord first. Does the Lord want me to venture here? Does the Lord want me to do this? And if he does, do so with passion and allow the Holy Spirit to use you as this servant, as the friend of the bridegroom to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Would you please stand as we sing this final song? As we sing this final song, this is your opportunity to respond to the message. Your time to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. In fact, the Holy Spirit might be doing something in you that I haven't even preached about today. That happens tons. Listen to his voice. He's the one finding the bride for the bridegroom.